Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. President Biden has supported allocating billions of dollars in infrastructure money for tribes, spoken about the need for meaningful consultation, and has appointed the first Native American woman as cabinet secretary. But how is his presidency stacking up when it comes to Indian country? Today, we'll get some perspectives on Biden's accomplishments and shortcomings when it comes to furthering tribal interests. And we'll take your calls coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. It began with a Chinese surveillance balloon taken out by a U.S. fighter jet earlier this month. Since then, there have been three smaller flying objects shot down over Alaska, Canada, and Michigan. All of that has Alaska lawmaker Senator Donnie Olson on edge. He was in a floor session Friday when he got word that an unidentified object was shot down near the Canadian border, a region that's home to Inupiat people and part of his district. Olson, a pilot, says the dangers are very real. So it's very concerning that you have something up there that's flying along or suspended in the air without a, a uh, air traffic control clearance. Uh, if you couldn't see it because of clouds or if it was nighttime, there could very easily be a collision. Olson worries the North Slope's remoteness and sparse population will make it more difficult to protect itself from foreign aggression. Over the years, the Inuit Circumpolar Council has watched increased military activity in the Arctic with a nervous eye. Jimmy Stotts, who recently retired as president of Alaska's ICC, is concerned the spy balloon and flying objects could be a distraction from a larger threat to the Arctic. Some of these conflicts elsewhere are spilling over and into the Arctic. I'm worried about that. Relationships, particularly over there in northern Europe, the Scandinavian countries and Russia, how things there could pretty easily, I think, go sideways. Stott says climate change, which has opened waters to navigation, has increased tensions in the Arctic and the potential for conflict. The Central American country of Guatemala is entering an election this year. Recently, protests were held as Maya candidate Thelma Cabrera and her running mate, a well-known human rights activist, were disqualified after being accused of campaigning on social media before the official start date. Maria Martin reports. Hundreds of supporters of the Maya Mom candidate Thelma Cabrera of the People's Liberation Movement took to the streets in downtown Guatemala City. Their slogans asked the country's highest electoral authority, the Supreme Electoral Tribunal, to reinstate Cabrera and her running mate, former human rights ombudsman Jordan Rodas, on the ballot for the June 25th election. During the last elections in 2019, Cabrera came in a strong fourth place, winning 10% of the vote. Surprising in this country were the last indigenous presidential candidate, Nobel Peace Laureate Rigoberta Menchu, only garnered the support of 3% of Guatemalan voters. This time around, Telma Cabrera and her running mate Rodas were expected to gain the reform vote for change in Guatemala, where most of the 30-odd parties represent the old guard, the military, and what's known as the Pact of the Corrupt. Delma Cabrera says she and Rodas plan to challenge their party's disqualification in court. For National Native News, I'm Maria Martin. 
On Sunday, demonstrators gathered in Glendale, Arizona, as the Kansas City football team played in the Super Bowl. They marched to the stadium where the game was held with signs calling on the team to change its name. People traveled from the greater Kansas City area for the protest, while others were from the Phoenix metropolitan area, like Cher Thomas from the Gila River Indian community, a tribe that was one of the official partners of the Super Bowl. Thomas says she wanted to use her voice to take a stand. If there's something that can be said, I'm going to say it. If there's something that can be done, I'm going to do it. If there's something that can be maneuvered, worked out, figured out, I believe in doing what I can with what I have. The Native advocacy groups Not In Our Honor and Arizona to Rally Against Native Mascots hosted the protest and other events, including a film screening and discussion about the fight against Indian mascots. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support from the Self-Governance Communication and Education Tribal Consortium presenting the 2023 Tribal Self-Governance Conference at the River Spirit Resort starting June 26th. Early bird registration closes February 25th at tribalselfgov.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. President Joe Biden touts what the White House calls historic spending for Native Americans, including billions of dollars in infrastructure funding specifically for tribes. Biden's agenda also includes defining and solidifying the process for meaningful tribal consultation, expanding cooperative stewardship of federal lands, and even pushing a 10-year plan to help revive Native languages. In anticipation of President's Day, we'll get Native perspectives on Biden's track record so far. How does he stack up to his predecessors? Has he advanced policies that are in the best interests of Native Americans? As always, we want to hear from listeners today. What is your view of this administration's track record on Native issues? What praise or criticisms do you have? Join the conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can also post a comment on our social media. Our Twitter handle is 1-800-99-NATIVE. And for more insights, you can also listen back to our show about the Inflation Reduction Act from August 23, 2022 on our archives. Speaking with us now from Tucson, Arizona, is Torivio Fodder. He is the manager of the Indigenous Governance Program at the University of Arizona and is a professor of practice. He is Taos Pueblo. Tori, welcome back to Native America Calling. Sean, how are you? Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Doing great. Thank you, Tori. Uh, Let's get into this, Tori. We're two years into the Joe Biden presidency. What's your assessment so far and its impact on Native Americans? And let's start with any wins. Yeah, no, I think I think it's good to good to focus on positive. Um, you know, one one thing, and and I, I'll, I'll list three, but you know, the one thing that comes to mind most is really the appointment of Secretary uh, Deb Holland. Um, I just I think it's it's so so important to have a native native woman in particular 
who's running the Department of the Interior that you know oversees Indian Affairs, and then from her leadership, you know, we can see how it's you know kind of trickled down to the other agencies and uh, the the federal employee level, where there's a lot more engagement now. Uh, I think uh, taking place under under her watch. So that's you know that's an appointment from the Biden administration that I think you've just got to you've got to really appreciate and. You know, it, it's important to give kudos and to have someone like her in a leadership position uh, who's done tremendous work already um, in, in a number of areas. I mean, um, <laughs> she was a congresswoman in her own right, but uh, you know, her I think her leadership at, at DOI has been impressive. All righty. Well, let me ask you that, uh, Tori, because obviously, yeah, I mean, it's just a historic, historic uh, appointment there with uh, Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland. But do you think this administration ha- has set more than just a precedent with regard to a Native American cabinet member? And what I mean by that is going forward, do you think we can expect that it's, it will be a given any future Democrat in the White House will appoint a Native American to head up the Department of the Interior? Um, no. No, I don't. I don't think it is a given. Um, I think Secretary Holland, you know, at, at that unique moment in time, um, you know, fit the bill and had the, the background and obviously her work in Congress and her prior experience uh, in New Mexico. I think. I just think that th- there was sort of a uh, <laughs> stars aligning to, for her appointment. I, so I don't think it's a given. I don't think it's a given going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think she's a unique person who has unique a unique skill set and leadership strengths, um, but no, I I wouldn't say it's it's you know something we can take for granted, which is why I think it's all the more it's it's all it's even more important um, to consider what she's done, where she's planning to take the department, um, and I just I just you know kind of feel like she's uh, she's she's unique. It would be great if if. You know, we could you know look for uh, future sort of given native cabinet appointees, but I just I just don't think it's it's a given. I mean, there's mm-hmm. every every candidate that runs will have their own team, their own you know political operation that'll pull in you know different experts from other areas of the public and private sector, and you know I just I think uh, you know the lightning struck with her in, in the Biden administration. Um, but I don't, I just don't, I don't see it as a, something we can take for granted. Okay. Okay. Well, Tori, how about any losses uh, for the Biden presidency? Where has the current administration fallen short on native issues? Yeah. Well, I, I hate to state the obvious, but it's in many ways, I think what you see is a general reflection of discontent in the broader American public. Um, yeah, I think it was. I, I'm, I'm, I might butcher the numbers, but I think it was the Washington Post poll, ABC um, News. But anyway, something like 45% of Americans had had no confidence in Biden's ability to make decisions for the country's future, and I think a lot of that's tied to the economy. And unfortunately, what what we've seen. I mean, if you if you go out to the res, if you go home, I mean. <laughs> Paying bills, buying groceries, um, paying paying on your credit card. I mean, all of those things have gotten a lot more difficult um, over the over the you know, past you know, two years of Biden's presidency. 
And you know, there are a lot of a lot of factors that, that go into that. Obviously, we're coming out of the pandemic. Um, we're in the wake of the Trump administration, so there's there's a lot going on. But unfortunately, I think that those kind of bread and butter issues um, hit Indian country acutely. Mm-hmm. I was uh, talking to a, a, a colleague, um, actually uh, from from Indiana, but uh, just you know, she was you know kind of going over just the the prices at the store and. And it's it, in some ways it's unfair because I think the economics of it. And I'm, I'm not an economist. I'm a lawyer. I, I assiduously avoided um, all things math and went to law school. But um, you know, the just you know, having having to pay for things that are so expensive. I mean, you go out to the res and you know talk to people back home, and it's it's tough. Right. And, right. Well, Tor, let I me ask you. I mean, yeah. You know. Yeah. And. Obviously, you know, the, the economy is kind of a game of hot potato, right? Like some of these issues, they they transfer between administrations. And I, I mean, how much can can we blame any standing president for issues like inflation and gas prices when we know that these are long term economic trends? Yeah, well, no, that that's exactly the problem. I mean, the you know, Harry Truman said it best, you know, decades ago, you know, the buck stops here. Uh, you've got a president in the White House, and you know the expectation I think of the American public is that presidents ought to work with Congress to the extent they can and, and try to do things to to fix problems. Now, I, what you're raising I think is important because you know these things aren't necessarily Biden's fault, mm-hmm. but he is the the uh, commander in chief. He's the you know president of the United States, and people look to him for leadership to. Um, address some of these important issues, right, and part right. of it, part of the whole political apparatus, I think, is being able to uh, communicate that you know there's there's some sort of plan. There's <laughs> and and it's not you know comforting to say well there's a plan. You know, it's it's more like you know here's A, B, and C, and here's what we're going to do about it. You know, something very concrete and substantive that people can take and appreciate. Well, Tori. What do you see as, as the top concerns right now or issues that the tribes and, and other native groups are, are looking to this administration for answers for or to address? Yeah, and I, I want to go back uh, to what we were kind of talking about earlier, if I can you know, kind of conflate the two, the two points you're raising. Um, I, I think some other wins uh, that the Biden administration has had I mean, one has been the uh, increase in focus on federal tribal consultation, and that's that's huge. If you're if you're a tribal leader, if you're on tribal council, um, you know, having kind of standardized or more uniform processes across the federal government um, to how tribes can um, talk to the feds, you know, provide input and um, you know, really meaningfully make their concerns and issues known. Um, that's huge, and and to have this kind of standardized, which is what the Biden administration, to their credit, has done. Um, it's it's a really big deal. Yeah, if you're, yeah. If you're looking at you know things from the tribal perspective. Okay, and I want to ask you. So, I mean, this increased consultation. I mean, I mean, what does that actually look like as compared to previous administrations? I mean, what how has that process been streamlined or improved so these tribes are able to enjoy more consultation directly with the administration? 
Yeah, well, I mean, so we've we've got uh, new policies that have been announced, and and actually, you know, one resource I'd, I'd encourage your listeners to do is to actually check out the White House uh, website and look at their fact sheet. Uh, this came out in like I think late November, but you know, we're talking about new policies that are that are coming in across some of the biggest departments that deal with Indian Country, so Department of the Interior, Justice, Transportation, um, even Homeland Security is in the mix. And actually having you know kind of uniform processes for how the feds can solicit and encourage and engage uh, tribes in sharing their perspectives on the various initiatives that come across different agencies and departments' desks, it's it's incredibly important. And I think what they what they've done in trying to create these new rules is really <laughs> it's it's uh, it's common sense in some respects, but you know having having a Systemic way for engaging in tribes across the federal government is not something that we've had before. So it's it's really a game changer in that you know it's uh, an effort by Washington to engage with Native nations and to actually you know hear their concerns and and solicit feedback on you know the various things that uh, are in the works. Um, really encouraging to see that coming out. Uh, and you know hats off to you know. The president and his team. We're speaking with Torivio Fodder. He's down in Tucson at the University of Arizona, uh, manager of the Indigenous Governance Program, and uh, we're getting assessment of the Joe Biden presidency. We're just over two years in now, the midterm. Uh, two years is certainly a lot of time uh, for action and consultation. We're learning more about it. If you've got a question or you'd like to share your assessment of the Biden presidency, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. James Cook is one of the most celebrated explorers in history. His legacy is imprinted on the many places around the globe that he's named or are named after him. But his treatment of indigenous people he encountered is less impressive. We'll get a history lesson on Captain James Cook on the next Native America Calling. Medicaid and CHIP cover many children's dental services, including teeth cleaning, fluoride treatments, and fillings. For more information about children's dental health, contact your Indian health care provider. Visit insurekidsnow.gov or call 877-543-7669. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're taking a two-year look at the track record of Native issues for the Biden administration. If you have a comment or question, you can call us at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We have Tory Fodder on the line right now talking about uh, his assessment of the Biden administration. And Tory, I want to ask you uh, regarding federal recognition, because I know that's a, a very hot topic, uh, an issue of concern uh, among native, many Native people. Do you think there's a possibility that any tribes uh, could gain federal recognition during this administration? Yeah, you know, I I think there's... Uh, <laughs> I, I don't want to raise you know, false false hopes. Um, so I won't name any any tribe in particular, but I, I do, I do. I think there's um, 
kind of critical mass for a couple of you know tribes that have had longstanding applications for federal recognition that have worked diligently from Congress to Congress um, to try to you know raise their claim for federal recognition. Um, I think there's a window um, within the next couple of years where we can see some bipartisan support uh, for federal recognition for you know a handful of tribes. Um, and and part of this though, I'll I'll temper it my my optimism by saying that I think um <laughs> it it it's a it has to be a bipartisan moment, right? Because you know we've got uh, Congress controlled by the Republicans, and you know in the State of the Union address last week, uh, you know there was there was quite a bit of rancor, but you know there there were some you know slivers of opportunity for I think the, the current Congress and the president to work together to advance uh, you know legislative agenda that you know, can can benefit folks. And you know when we're talking about tribes in particular, I think that there's um, you know, a window to for some of these tribes that have been you know kind of working toward recognition for you know, a number of decades. I I hope and I think we might see you know some traction now. Okay. Another hot topic: uh, Leonard Peltier. In fact, we're going to be doing a show about Leonard Peltier later this week. Uh, any chance that Biden could act on clemency or even compassionate release for Peltier? It's been forty-seven years now. Since he's been behind bars, uh, yes, I, I think so. And, and this is this is just you know my own optimism. I, I have no uh, reason to suspect uh, otherwise. But um, I, I just I do. I, I feel like there's there's an element of compassion for his health situation, for the circumstances under which he was you know, arrested and convicted. Um, if if there's a moment for the Biden administration to really come through. Um, this this is it. I mean, I feel like uh, Leonard Peltier is such an icon for Indian country and for resistance, for change, for I mean, you know, one of the original change makers uh, for, for Indian country in, in the protest era. So there, I, <laughs> I, I hope so. I, I would like to see that happen, and I feel like um, for Indian country, it'd be a, it'd be a huge opportunity just to say, you know, okay, you know, here here's. Uh, you know, someone who who stood up for indigenous rights in the United States, and finally, after all this time, uh, you know, there's there's a bit of um, compassion and justice served by uh, by some sort of clemency or um, pardon. And how do you think uh, Biden's track record on Native issues compares to previous administrations? I'm not just Trump, but Obama, even going back to the Bushes and Clinton. Where does he stand? Yeah, I I would say this. I mean, the the clearest link to bank I think is between uh, the Biden administration and the Obama administration. Um, and and I know I know this. You know, having a lot of colleagues who served who served in both administrations, um, I I feel like a lot of what um, President Obama said is the foundation, and and these uh, kind of um, Annual annual gatherings, um, you know, where the we have the tribal nations summit, and um, that was really you know kind of taken in hand by President Obama and, and made a priority. Um, <laughs> I think what we've seen is you know a lot of that foundation was built during the administration of, of President Obama, and what President Biden has done is sort of build on that. 
And we could say there was an aberration in the four years of President Trump. Um, so I think I think what we see is sort of a almost a, a generational policy development. And unfortunately, you know, we don't we don't necessarily see the same sorts of commitments necessarily in, in the Congress or certainly in the in the Supreme Court, which is a whole other <laughs> topic area we could get into. But um, I think I think what we see is a, a clear bridge between the two. Um, and you know, arguably, I mean, the the greatest president for American Indian rights was President Richard Nixon. He was a Republican. Mm-hmm. Um, it was under the Reagan administration where we first had you know a Republican icon uh, who you know committed to the nation to nation dialogue. So I mean, what we I think what we've seen though is it, more recently a hard and fast commitment between these two administrations, Obama and Biden. Um, to really make Indian policy a focus, and and that's encouraging, you know, insofar as you know, we can, you know, look into the future and, and hope that future administrations of, of a similar uh, political leaning will follow suit. Tori, thanks for those insights. Any, anybody with a question or a comment for our show today uh, about an assessment of the Biden presidency? Phone number is 1-800-996-2848. I'd like to introduce our second guest on the show now. Joining us from Tulsa, Oklahoma is Jordan Harmon. She is a policy analyst and legislative advocate for the Indigenous Environmental Network. She is Muskogee Creek. Jordan, welcome back to Native America Calling as well. Thank you. Glad to be back. Jordan, President Biden has touted protections for land that is important for some tribes, and I'm talking about Bears Ears in Utah, Spirit Mountain in Nevada. How significant are these accomplishments in your view? Um, Those are really important accomplishments. Um, Actually, those are things that have um, been called for by indigenous people for a really long time, especially those specific sites, um, especially Bears Ears. It's good to see that he's declared the National Monuments for Protection. Um, It would be even better to see them return to uh, trust ownership by the tribe, but, Mm -hmm. you know, It was a big concern that those sacred sites would be forever destroyed by development. So, um, yeah, it's definitely a good thing that, at least for now, that's not as much of a risk. (laughs) And beyond uh, taking those those lands and placing them into trust on behalf of tribes, uh, what more could the president be doing to protect Native lands in review? Um, I think that the president could be doing a lot more to protect lands and to protect indigenous land stewardship and tribal sovereignty. I think in terms of climate policy, the Biden administration has actually been pretty disappointing overall. Um, At the start of the presidency, like was mentioned before, um, he issued an executive order um, basically asking agencies to develop a tribal consultation plan and sort of on the surface they did do that as a part of this executive order and I think if you compare it to like the Trump presidency for example there's definitely more of an emphasis on access to this office. Um, I don't necessarily think that better than Trump is a good 
standard, <laughs> though. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that, you know, that's not that much of a standard. And, you know, looking back before Trump and beyond, he's very much more of a status quo presidency. I don't really see him as shaking up the like tribal consultation. And when you look at how it's playing out in implementation, there's a lot of ways that tribal consultation is still being ignored and is still not being codified in a really, really, really enforceable way with legislation in Congress. Um, and Representative Grijalva on the House Natural Resources Committee had proposed the Respect Act uh, many times and has developed sort of uh, a codified version of what tribal consultation could look like that would actually force agencies not to just come up with guidelines, but to actually come up with and plan, but to actually come up with enforceable like rights that come with judi- the right to judicial review, and you can actually hold the government accountable to that. The Biden administration has so far fallen short of going that far, um, which is part of why he's a status quo presidency. Another thing that people have been asking for him, indigenous communities and environmental justice communities across the board have been asking him to declare a climate emergency under the National Emergencies Act, which would actually allow him to stop oil exports, actually allow him to stop Um, fossil fuel expansion and public leasing and allow him to fast track a transition to renewables, which is something that the Biden administration and Democrats have stated that they want to do. And despite this very strong unified front asking for this to be done, um, he has failed to do that. Part of his justification for not declaring a climate emergency, even though we are definitely in a climate emergency. We have climate refugees here in the United States. People are fleeing their homes. People are without food and without electricity. This is happening in indigenous communities and vulnerable communities in the Gulf and in the Arctic um, and on all of the coast and in the Midwest for that matter. Um, And yet he hasn't done that. Part of his justification was the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, and then Infrastructure and Jobs Act, because he claims and went onto an international stage to claim that those acts were historic climate policy acts that are going to have these massive reductions in emissions. But when you take a closer look at the impact of, of what the IRA is going to do, the programs that are rolling out of it, it really doesn't have that massive impact on emissions that he's claiming it is. Mm-hmm. And it's not really a justification just because this act passed to stop trying to, you know, enact more climate policy. And that's kind of where he's coming from. And like speaking on the international stage, um, part of um, the plan coming from this administration since COP26 and going into the Conference of the Parties, which is the UN Framework for Climate Change Conference, where the nations come together to decide the global plan on climate change, basically. So this most recent COP conference, which was in Egypt, um, he, the United States 
came to tell the world that private financialization is the path to saving the climate. And that is in direct conflict with one indigenous values and it's in direct conflict of what we know about the root cause of climate okay. catastrophe. Yeah, okay. go ahead. Yeah, Jordan. And, and I, I do want to take a call because we have a caller on the line, but I, I just want to, you know, it's, it's, it's a complex issue in a sense because like you're, you're describing this private financialization. Um, but yet, like, let me give you an example. Like Biden has expressed support for North Slope oil drilling. Now, on one hand, for Alaska Native corporations, that's a big win, right? Because many of them are heavily invested in, in that industry, but yet controversial for some of these climate change impacts that you're describing. So when we look at this as Native people, what do we need to keep in mind when we have in many cases, competing interests among our own communities, our own, among our own tribal governments, among different groups. Yeah, well, you bring up Alaska, which is a particularly interesting place because you've got this really unique structure that the federal government sort of assigned to them in the Alaska Native Corporation. Um, sort of, I think part of that conflict is the understanding that not all Indigenous people do have the same beliefs and that every nation is different and that not every tribal government or entity actually represents the people that it's supposed to represent, just like any other government. Mm -hmm. um, and that within indigenous communities, there are differences of opinion. Um, when we're looking at climate policy, I think it's important to keep in mind the people we want to hold most accountable are the big polluters. That doesn't necessarily include indigenous communities. Um, understanding that a lot of these communities are in partnership with large polluters developing these, um, but also the fact that Alaska villages have been very unified um, in some ways in opposing drilling in the Arctic. Um, a good example of that is the Willow Project, where in spite of a lot of feedback from Native communities in Alaska and elsewhere, that this is a bad project, it's an Arctic drilling um, project, that he kind of ignored that. And the BLM has um, decided to recommend moving forward with the Willow project. Um, okay. So, All right, Jordan, let me, I'm sorry, I'm going to go ahead and take a call now because we do have one caller that's been waiting for quite a while. Tom, listening online in Rudoso, New Mexico. Hello, Tom. Thanks for your patience. You're on the air. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, Tom, loud and clear. Great. Thank you for taking my call. And there's a lot of excellent issues being brought up and discussed. And I, I'm i uh, grateful that uh, some of these things are at least being brought up so that they can hopefully be addressed. Uh, one thing that I wanted to bring up was the extremely high levels of human abuses on tribal land and uh what's being done to uh, uh, address that, especially uh, uh, females, so many unaccounted for abductions and abuses. And uh, if anything is, is being coordinated with the feds without you know, compromising sovereignty to uh, begin to address this high level of, uh, of crime. And then, the other issue that I wanted to bring attention is 
uh, you know, fracking sort of went off to the wayside, but it's still being done. And it's still having uh, encroaching on sacred land, especially places like Chaco Canyon. Those are my two questions. Thank you for taking my call. Alrighty, that was Tom in Rudosa, New Mexico. Tom, two really good questions. One regarding human abuses, and that ties right in with the missing and, and murdered Indigenous people uh, issue, the crisis that we face uh, in Native America, and also questions regarding fracking, specifically on on tribal lands and important spaces such as that. We do have to take a, a break, but when we come back, I'm going to give Jordan a chance to respond to those questions from our caller, Tom. Uh, we're talking now with Jordan Harmon, policy analyst and legislative advocate for the Indigenous Environmental Network. Folks, give us a call with more questions, more comments for our show We are critiquing the Biden administration here on Native America Calling, and our phone number is 1-800-996-2848. Give us a call. We'll get your comments on the air. Support from the Self-Governance Communication and Education Tribal Consortium, presenting the 2023 Tribal Self-Governance Conference at the River Spirit Resort in Tulsa, Oklahoma, June 26th to the 29th. Learn how tribes are using self-governance for the delivery of programs and services for their citizens and communities, and how this authority improves the health and well-being of tribal communities. Early bird registration closes February 25th at tribalselfgov.org. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Still plenty of time to join our conversation about the Biden administration. You can call us at 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. Before we went into break, we had a caller who had a couple of questions. The first one with regard to fracking, uh, what's being done with regard to fracking, uh, how prevalent is it still uh, in communities near Native country. Uh, Jordan, I'd like to go ahead and and have you respond to that question about fracking. What can you offer for insights? Um, Yeah, sure. So... That's a really good question. I'm glad that that was brought up. And understanding that um, one of the Biden Biden administration's failures has been sort of the sneaky way of sneaking oil and gas interests into climate policy. One of those ways is using decarbonization as a tool for enhanced oil recovery. What that means is They basically want to use technologies that suck carbon out of the air, stores it underground, and transports it through pipelines. And that condensed transported carbon is then used for enhanced oil recovery, a.k.a. fracking, um, which comes with all of the, you know, injection wells and all the same dangers. So actually, fracking is an integrated part of Biden's climate plan and climate policy. It's definitely still a really serious issue. I'm in Oklahoma, and despite having, you know, absurdly record-breaking earthquakes in the last 15 years, we still allow injection wells into our state to a certain degree, and where our state is looking into um, carbon pipelines and injection wells for the purpose of enhanced oil recovery. So, yeah. Okay. Jordan, what's the, the status on fracking near Chaco Canyon? Because I, I, I know at one point uh, President Biden issued a moratorium on that. Not sure if it has sunsetted or not, or he's extended it. Do you know? 
Um, I am not sure about if it's been taken away or not. Um, but that would be a good thing to look into because that's definitely one way that the moratorium was a big win in that region. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, as far as I'm aware, like the moratorium, um, is still standing, but that there's still some activity going on there. There may be some, um, extraction going on in that area that's not being stopped by the moratorium. I, right. I wish I had more better details about that. <laughs> okay, no worries, no worries. Uh, the, the caller's other question was regard to uh, missing and murdered issues on, on various parts of uh, the United States. And Tori, I'm going to go ahead and let you field this one again. Tori Fodder, who is uh, with the Indigenous Governance Program at the University of Arizona. And Tori, I, I know uh, a big win of the Biden administration, and specifically uh, Secretary Holland, was the announcement of an MMIW task force. And maybe that would be a good way to address the caller's question. Uh, what's your take on that so far? How successful has that MMIW task force been? Yeah, well, I, I think like many things in the federal government, um, it's it's early days. You know, the, the announcement of it and you know, actual implementation across the different federal agencies, I think it takes, it just takes time. And and that's, that's not uh, a satisfactory answer when you're, um, family has lost a loved one in, in this this type of manner, but I think uh, I think what we can you know look ahead to is you know, finally we're seeing you know cross agency coordination to actually address some of these issues, and I I think um, in, in, importantly you know will be you know how the president can engage Congress to actually. Uh, implement solutions that will you know, help, A, educate the public and make these issues, you know, news. I, I hate to put it so crassly, but uh, so often when someone goes missing, you know, a loved one uh, from Indian country, um, you, you don't hear about it. So, I mean, part of it is, I think, raising public awareness. And I think the second point is it has to be some sort of policy response that Actually, can you know, uh, coincide with the implementation of some of these federal law enforcement guidelines? Um, what we're seeing now, I think, is the early days of implementation, and and hopefully that will you know yield um, some sort of law enforcement response where we see uh, some of these instances actually being investigated and, and, and looked into. Uh, right now, I think it's a bit too early to uh, actually. Uh, expect the government to deliver on that. I mean, the wheels of bureaucracy tend to turn slowly. Unfortunately, it's just you know the just the reality of you know, how government works. All righty, um, Jordan, back to you. And uh, another really pressing concern for tribes, tribal nations all over is respect for sovereignty and how willing and able uh, a presidential administration is to just having that respect and regard for tribal sovereignty. And how do you think the Biden administration is doing in that regard? So I think that if an administration really respected the sovereignty of tribal nations, that they would engage in a practice of free and prior informed consent which is an idea that has been asked for 
by Indigenous people for quite a while, many decades now, uh, where they are actually given, one, all of the information about a project that's going to occur in their um, community. And that's one area where the Biden administration and all administrations, not just his, have failed, um, which is actually letting them know, like, who are the investors in this project? What is their impact, not just in this project, but on a large scale? Do you even want to partner with these people in your community? It's like those types of information that the presidency doesn't really see as vital to informing communities about a project. There's also a lot of things like long-term health impacts that are not discussed in these um, consultations. Cumulative impacts of projects in a given area. Those are really common sense type issues for communities that aren't included in the consultation process. Um, and going back to the MMIW question, uh, there has been an effort in this administration to um, have some kind of data collection. There was the Savannah's Act, which sort of gave agencies the authority to try to implement that. Um, but it hasn't really been good enough. And part of the reason why is because he's still approving projects on public land and building pipelines through public land and next to sacrifice zones where reservations and indigenous communities are, where they already have pipelines, they already have facilities there. And this increased presence of these workers and man camps leads to increased MMIW. That is something missing and murdered people, not just women. And that is something the federal government has admitted and they have yet to actually declare how they're going to use that connection to like make a difference and scale back those projects in those vulnerable areas. Okay, uh, Jordan, before we wrap up today, and Tori as well, uh, we're going to make an acknowledgement of World Radio Day. Uh, the United Nations recognized the importance of radio in 2011. But before we do that, before we pivot, I, I want to give each of you a chance to respond quickly. Jordan, uh, what letter grade would you give this administration regarding its commitments, native issues? Just right off the cuff. I give it a D. A D. Okay, Tori, how about you? <laughs> I'm going to be a bit more optimistic. I'll, I'll give him a B plus. Okay, that's a pretty wide range there. I think uh, that'd be somewhere like a, a C minus average, maybe. I'm not sure. Somewhere along there, C, C minus. All righty, folks. A really, really good conversation today regarding the Biden administration. Joining us now to talk about World Radio Day is Joseph Orozco. He is the website content coordinator for KIDE. He is Hoopa. Joseph, welcome back to Native America Calling. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's good to be back. Yeah. <laughs> you bet. You bet. Well, I'm not going to ask you for a letter grade for President Joe Biden, but I would like to ask you, uh, what does radio mean for tribal nations? Radio, it, that's a very important question. Why, why do we have Native radio? And we, the why is so that we can communicate with one another. And we're so far spread out. And we didn't get to communicate with one another when people came to either coast and we couldn't reach the other people on the other side. Well, what's going on? And so we had to wait until something changed and then we had to react. Well, if we were able to talk with one another, that would be a very important aspect of our history 
and things just may have been different. So why is native radio important is so that we can not just talk with one another in our own communities, but we can talk with other communities just like other radio stations, commercial radio stations. Uh, how many people listened to the Super Bowl yesterday? You know, that that was available. That's what we need to all tribes need to have is access to media ownership. We are very good consumers of media, but we are very um I would say a very low level of ownership of media. I'm really glad that India Country Today got that huge CPB grant to allow them to expand their new services to more access to more people. Well, every tribe needs that. Mm-hmm. We need to have that whole discussion of how do people know in America what is happening in, to Native people? They, they got here and they they saw the wonders. Oh my goodness, I can't see very many people here, so uh, it, it must be an open country. And then they just took off, and they and they saw resources. Well, Joseph, so I, I want to ask you that. Yeah, absolutely, and, and I want to ask you more because you know you mentioned tribal radio, and and of course everything is just moving towards digital content, online streaming, and things like that. And and obviously there are you know, challenges, not as many people may be listening to the radio as in years past. And what what are some of the specific challenges that are facing tribal radio stations today in 2023? Well, there is this whole uh, uh, opportunities to use other media. Okay. But as we're talking right now, we have a website and we have a web server uh, it is hosted by an outside organization that they're having problems right now, so I can't get on our our website, and uh, it's 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 down right now. So, but the radio station's working. Cell phones go down when the cell towers go down. If there's no power to them, that happened in Southern California, and there's a huge fire down there, and it shut down the cell phones. But the radio stations worked. So the radio stations, in the event of, of perhaps a, a major crisis or something like that, radio is is a tried and true communication platform. Is that what you're saying? Yes, it is the core. Radio stations and newspapers are the basis of journalism. Mm-hmm. You, you, that is the basis of democracy is people being able to exchange ideas and listen to one another. That's the other thing that when when we have all the social media, you, we send out a lot of messages, but we don't, and there's knee-jerk responses, but there's no real discussion. And so Joseph, through radio, we could do that. Sure, sure. Um, any interesting or exciting projects that uh, tribal radio producers are working on that, that you'd like to share or talk about today? America Calling is, is the flagship of, of the system. It was started out as American Indian Radio and Satellite. Now it's Native Voice One, but we still kept that same flagship, Native America Calling. And I have always said that we need more Native America Calling programs. 
Native America Calling was originally based upon America Calling, which is an NPR program. And they have like five different hosts, five different programs, and you can just go one after another, one after another. You hear one discussion and people call into those. Native America Calling needs that same thing. We have one. That's a great start, and it's a great program. A lot of people listen to some of the favorite programs in every Native community that has a radio station. But we need more. And well, I Joseph, know that's uh, going to cost a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're not going to get any argument from me. That's a heck of a plug there for Native America Calling. Sure do appreciate uh, that that history lesson you just shared. And, and what got you into radio, Joseph? How long have you been uh, producing and, and working with radio? Well, I started in radio back in uh, 1978 when we started the radio station here with a whole concept. That's when I I became aware of it, and somebody took me to a Native uh, National Federation for Community Broadcasters regional meeting, and I just learned about, you know, there's another kind of radio than commercial radio. And I, I saw the importance of it. I heard the importance of why these people are doing what it is that they do. And I thought, wow, that's what Hoopa needs. And so I got on board. And I, I was on the original board of directors. And in 1988, I took over as manager until 2022 or 2020. So that was 20, 32 years I was a manager. Then I stepped back and think, well, I've got to retire at some point. I'm still easing my way out. I went to 30 hours a week. Now I'm at 10 hours a week. So, uh, it's, but you're still hanging important. in there. <laughs> still still in there. there it's so important. Still in the saddle, for sure. Really appreciate you uh, joining us today, Joseph. And with that, we have reached the end of our show. I want to thank all of our guests today, Tori Fodder, Jordan Harmon, and Joseph Orozco, for what's been a timely discussion and critique of the impact of the Biden presidency on Native Americans, along with an acknowledgment of World Radio Day. Join us tomorrow as we look at the legacy of famed 18th century explorer, Captain James Cook. Until then, I'm your host, Sean Spruce. As people seek to know diverse cultures, tribal museums and cultural centers grow more popular. So the Institute of American Indian Arts, who support this show, now provides a Master of Fine Arts in Cultural Administration. Focused on social equity and support of cultural community growth, this program combines administrative tools and techniques with socially engaged leadership, blending institutional skills and community outreach programming. Deadline to apply is February 15 at iaia.edu slash mfaca. Support by the American Indian College Fund. The American Indian College Fund provides millions of dollars of scholarships to thousands of Native students every year. Tribal citizens of every age and experience are eligible. The deadline for applications is May 31st, and you can find everything you need to apply at collegefund.org. That's collegefund.org or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Education is the answer. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.